Welcome to episode 31 of season 2, where I speak to experts to help navigate the post-divorce journey. Today we are talking about how to overcome shame of single parenting and live your authentic life with a special guest, Kira Wackett. Kira is a licensed mental health therapist specializing in shame and anxiety, also an entrepreneur and a mom based in Portland, Oregon. She is also the founder of Adversity Rising where it's centered on the idea we all have the right to author our own stories if we can learn to relinquish the holds of shame, fear, and anxiety. Kira also grew up in a single parent household. Today she is sharing with us her experiences, her struggles, and things that were working in addition to overcoming shame, how to have deep conversations, and the importance of gratitude. Specifically, what I loved most about this episode that Kira shared, in a moment when you think everything sucks, is there a moment of gratitude that you can have that helps you see that the world is more than this moment of pain, this thought that you are stuck on? Thank you for reviewing, downloading, and subscribing to our podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you. Now be the messenger of hope and share this episode with one of your friends. Enjoy this conversation with Kira. Something exciting happened as a result of this podcast on December 9, 2022, Soul Parent Book, Inspirational Wisdom and Guidance on Navigating Life as a Single Parent was born. This is a collection of the most inspiring and powerful stories from wonderful guests over the last 33 months in my podcast, Single Parent Success Stories, stories of accomplishments, challenges, and breakthroughs of single parents as well as experts to help navigate the post-divorce journey. When I started my podcast, my goal was to create a guide to single parents by sharing inspiring stories that remind us there is light at the end of the tunnel. Nothing is lost. It's an opportunity for a rebirth and reinventing of yourself. It's an opportunity to look at life and become conscious of where you are headed and an invitation to create a life by design. If you like to get a copy of the book, please follow links in the episode notes. All proceeds are going to the Kinship Charity. If you'd like to suggest a future topic for the podcast, please fill out feedback form located in episode notes. Welcome to Single Parent Success Stories. I am your host, Irina Shehovtsov, and I am on a mission to empower broken-hearted women to break the chains of the past and move forward boldly into the future. Single Parent Success Stories was created to inspire single parents out there who are struggling to help them realize what is possible. Hello and welcome to Single Parent Success Stories. Today's guest is Kira Wackett. Did I say that right? Kira Wackett. Wackett, okay, awesome. Joining us from Portland, Oregon. She is a licensed mental health therapist specializing in shame and anxiety. She is an entrepreneur and mom. Her company, Adversity Rising, is centered on the idea we all have the right to author our own stories if we can learn to relinquish the holds of shame, fear, and anxiety, if we can learn to do the hard work, sit in the discomfort to face our true selves, and trust the process. Kira is also a a child who grew up in a single-parent household. So welcome, Kira. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah. 
So please share with us your story, who you are. Yeah, so I think, you know, right now I am, I think my most salient role is entrepreneur. I'm a mom to an almost three-year-old. I am, I think a... We'll talk a lot about shame in the course of this episode. I think I'm a recovering shame addict, just trying to navigate what it means to find a sense of being okay every day in a world where we're constantly inundated with messages we're not. I, in my business, I am pretty much that's all I focus on is talking to people about shame. So it's just been this really awesome and yet incredibly overwhelming past few years of navigating what it means for people as they transition in and out of a pandemic and life in general. And yeah, as you mentioned, I am the adult child of a single parent. I'm an only child too. So having that experience that is kind of specific in a variety of ways and was raised predominantly by my mom, but then lived also with sort of my secondary singular parent as my grandma when my mom struggled with some addiction and mental health stuff. So kind of two different single parent household experiences shaping me to who I am today. Awesome. Awesome. So please share with us your experiences growing up as a, as a, in a single parent household. What are some of the challenges you faced? Mm. Yeah, I think I thought a lot about this after we first met and just kind of thinking about what that was like to be both with a single parent, but also being the only kid of a single parent. There's a kind of a layer two that came up. So my mom had three miscarriages and a stillborn before having me. So she actually had been told by her medical team, she wasn't going to be able to have kids anymore and, or wasn't going to be able to carry a, a pregnancy to term. And so there are all these layers that kind of came into it. We'll get to this later, but my mom had some undiagnosed mental health stuff. I think a lot of shame around not having been able to have a pregnancy go to term and her body and what that meant and just all these things. And when she got pregnant with me, I really was her gift. I was her everything. And I think my mom's unresolved grief from loss previously, her shame about maybe not being good enough, her constant pressure of how do I make everything amazing, but also I think her obsession feels a little bit extreme, but her, we'll use the term for now, her obsession with having a kid, all that kind of mixed together where I was, I was her everything. I was the epitome of what like everything anchored on in her life. And that was you know, I think wonderful in some ways, but we joke now with Everly being three and we celebrate Christmas in our family. And we talked about how she's getting two Christmas presents from us. And then she always will get a book and then something small from Santa. And we talked about that and I'm like, gosh, that feels like a lot. And my husband grew up getting, you know, maybe five to 10 things for Christmas. And when I grew up, I got not an exaggeration, probably like 50 gifts for Christmas. Like these were things that like my mom would do that, like we would live in a three bedroom household and I had two of the three bedrooms. Like I had a playroom and my room. Like I was very much the central point of what she did and how she existed. And yeah, it was great in some ways, but I think really challenging too, because there was a lot of enmeshment that came from that without my mom having the buffer, I think of another person or party, an adult specifically to work through some of these things with, she did the best she could, 
but she didn't necessarily have someone to help kind of reinforce when maybe she was going at it too much. So things that were her extremes, like giving me, you know, two rooms, all these things, letting me sort of parent the household in a lot of ways. I think that was something that maybe was more of a struggle because she didn't have anyone on the outside going, Hmm, let's check in about that. Or like how I do with my husband every day where it's like, gosh, did I, I'm really struggling with that. Did I get that right? Did I miss something? And so I think that was maybe one of the biggest pieces, but the other thing I think a lot about, again, a a mom working full-time and with what we found out later on was bipolar disorder she had sort of this extremism and how she functioned. And so she was pretty much never around. So when she was around, I got to do everything, be everything. It was all about me. And then she would be gone. Like she worked almost every holiday. She was always constantly trying to have to work to make ends meet. But also I think again, shame and making up for, I need to earn a certain amount. I need to have a certain status. I have to have this and that to try to, again, kind of counteract her shame and All that was a lot, I think, kind of boiling it down to this idea of I was never really the kid in a way that I got to just be a kid and explore and screw up. I was always sort of treated like an equal in a way that didn't give me the opportunity to learn how to understand communication, boundaries, skills. I learned it eventually, but I didn't know how to do that with her because I think her own storyline stopped her from sometimes giving me what I needed to structure my life, to learn how to exist in the ways that I needed to in the world. Thank you. Thank you. If you had an opportunity to go back and speak to your mom now, when you, what, what would you Mm -hmm. tell her? What kind of advice would you give her? Well, as you ask that question, so there's two things that come up. So one, I think another layer of shame that my mom had is, again, she had been told she wasn't going to be able to have kids. And for people that aren't familiar with bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder has sort of an increased risk-taking and impulsivity. And at the time with it not being diagnosed and obviously then not medicated, that sort of mixed with the grief of not being able to have kids, my mom had a certain degree of physiological hypersexuality and risk-taking. So she was dating a lot of people. She was sexually active with a lot of people. She didn't know who my dad was. And that was something that I think until very recently, she carried a lot of shame around. And so I remember growing up, she didn't, like, she would tell me stories of like, oh no, I know who it is. But then the story would change next time of like, I think it's one of these people or, you know, no, I've been in touch that, you know, they, they aren't interested in being around like all these different stories. And it was like, she was trying on the way to make me not feel abandoned, but also give me a sense of closure, like some sort of an answer. Like it would be easier if we knew who he was, but he wasn't around versus just saying, I don't know. But I think one thing I want, I would want to tell her with that is it's okay to just tell me the truth with some of those things and to give me Like there were moments that I wish she talked to me a little bit more like an adult and told me things like that so we could process it because I could have processed that at five, at eight, at 10. And then there were things that I think maybe I would have wanted her to know I didn't need to be her whole world to feel loved. I think she, 
she didn't really give herself a chance to have her own life. And so even now as an adult, I think that is a harder thing for her. And we've had to work through a lot of enmeshment and a lot of boundary pieces because of that. And so I think letting her know it, it would have been okay to go out on a Friday night with friends and to leave me with a babysitter. You know, it didn't, it didn't have to be either making me her everything or making work her everything. And that was really all she did. And I think a lot of that, again, just tied back to shame. And so I, I wish she would have maybe given herself more space. And then I think for me, I might've felt a little bit more room to breathe because that like obsession with me almost made it where I never wanted to disappoint her. So there was a lot of things that I would do or be excited about or get involved in because I wanted her to feel good because I could tell it was her everything. So you wanted kind of to please her kind of as a, yeah. And, and, and I think there's this idea too, of like, I'm the only other person in the family, you know? So there wasn't anybody else. If she came home and she had a hard day, there was no buffer mm-hmm. besides me and her, like, who else is she going to talk to about it? And when all she, she was a nurse. And so when she would be working these shifts and then come home and then she's with me and it's, you know, and especially, so I'm 35, this was in the eighties and the nineties, mental health was talked about even less than, than it is now. And So I think there wasn't a lot of support for people in the nursing field. She was working in the height of the AIDS crisis and with HIV patients and AIDS patients a lot. And she was really struggling with, I think, a lot of what that meant, a lot of mortality, a lot of loss, a lot of grief. But then also just, again, she's she just felt lucky to have me. And I think this constant sense of maybe imposter syndrome or like, I could lose it at any moment. And so that sort of hypervigilance and that hyper-focus, I think, stopped her from getting to know me and made it a little bit more about her projection of what the experience needed to be for it to be okay or for her to be good enough. What were, do you have any best parts about about Mm. growing up? What were some of the good parts? I think a lot of it for... I'm sure that this is now because I'm a parent and I see this, but one of the things that I did appreciate about my mom, again, there's like a a boundary aspect. Maybe there are things that weren't appropriate to talk about when I was five or seven or 10, but I did appreciate that my mom didn't skirt away from some of the stuff that needed to be talked about. Sometimes she wasn't always honest about it right away or like struggled with it, but we did have conversations. And I think there were times that because my mom, again, sort of put me up in this role of like equal in some ways, what I said and what I felt was always taken seriously. And I know now as a mental health therapist, I work with a lot of teenagers who have a hard time telling their parents what's going on with them because they feel like it's going to be dismissed. They feel like it's not going to be taken seriously. And so she always heard what I had to say. Sometimes she maybe went too far with it and panicked and worried. And that was maybe her own stuff, but I never felt unseen. I also think one of the other things she did is she was aware on some level of how privileged I was. So again, I got a lot of stuff. Like I was materially privileged in a lot of ways and she was never short on making sure I understood what that privilege meant. And, and so again, I think maybe the answer looking back is now I'm course correcting that experience by saying, we're not going to have 50 presents. We're going to do something different, but she would get me different presents. But then it was always about, 
sharing. We would, you know, go into the hospitals and we would go and like visit in the children's hospital and we would bring toys into them. We would assemble buckets if I wasn't playing with something or if I had a friend come over to play who really liked something, we were always talking about how to share and how to be okay giving back. And so I appreciated that she found a balance in some of those things and talked to me about that. And I think that maybe the third thing is she did date, but I, it's probably again, kind of a, maybe it's questionable, but to me, I appreciated it. I was always involved in the dating process, maybe a bit earlier than some people might say is helpful or healthy, but my mom never went on a date without talking to me about who they are. And I always, if she was interested enough in them to go spend more time with them, I always went on a date very early on with them. Mm -hmm. And she would, if they had kids, she always wanted those kids to be a part of it. And so again, I think there are places where I would have liked her to have more of her own time to date and to know that it was okay. And it didn't have to be that, but she did always, she never wanted me to be scared about somebody that could be in our lives. So I was always a part of that conversation. And I think that was really helpful, at least for me. How did it make you feel going on the dates and stuff? Well, so I, you know, it was weird at times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that it was very clear to, and I've seen this now, I have a couple of patients that I work with on this too, where maybe they've had a divorce or they've had a separation or for one you know point or another, they don't have a partner in their life with their child. Mm-hmm. And there is this, I think my kid is my world. You have to like, if you aren't all in with my kid, you don't belong here. And I think that's a really important piece because that is a significant part of your world. Sometimes I think it might've been too intense for me and for them. So there were times that I like, I would have final say after those points too. Like again, another boundary that maybe I would have liked to tell her it would have been okay if I didn't like somebody right away for you to go out with them again. But if I didn't like someone, she didn't spend time with them. And so there were times I definitely... Uh, abused it, we'll say. And I, <laughs> I took advantage of the power that I knew that I had, but I do, I, I think that there were also times where they just weren't ready for that. Like maybe they knew her a little bit and like, maybe they had their own trauma. Maybe they didn't ever spend time around kids or they had their own kids and they were dealing with things. Like, I think maybe looking back on it, there could have been a bit more conversation for the other person who was dating around it too. But I do feel like it, my mom was somebody that didn't really care to waste her time with men if it wasn't going to be something that would result in like a family type of situation. And so I think to her credit, she just didn't really care if it bothered them. Um, but again, I think sometimes maybe gave me a little bit too much say in the process because of that. Right. No, but she brought you in to make sure because you are her everything and bring right. some external person and you got to make sure that everything is good and on board. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, one of the things, and this is something, again, I think so many parents and caregivers do. And in particular, mm-hmm. when you're a single parent is you don't want your kid to feel like they're missing out on something. And so sometimes you have, you have projected, like I only ever knew a single parent. I didn't suddenly, and some people it's different. Some people, they had two parents in the household and then there's a divorce, there's a death, there's some sort of trauma and they have to integrate that new reality into their life. That's a very different processing. But for me, I only ever knew 
a single parent. And so I think my mom had a projection of what it was supposed to be like. And this comes up even for people that I work with who are getting a divorce, who are having a separation, who, you know, something happens with their partner. They had an ideal of what life was supposed to be. We see that even with parents where they're like, well, I'm going to stay together until the kids graduate high school and then they get a divorce. And then the kids get older and they're like, yeah, we knew you were unhappy the whole time. So I think a big part of it is how many instances do we as caregivers as parents have a projection of what something should be and we we focus our energy on creating that rather than paying attention to I'm sure there are opportunities I gave her to say I don't need this I don't want this you know I might look for something different and I think I learned my grandma used to joke that my mom got really lucky but I do I think maybe some of it is traits, but I have struggled with stuff in like, as I've gotten older, where I am really good at being the one that kind of manages a household and controls everything and has all the power. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means I don't, I don't play well, giving other people space in my sandbox. And that's a really tricky thing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's great. And your kid can't be your whole world and still leave them and you having a healthy relationship with each other and with other people. They have to be a big part of your world. But I think there's that piece of knowing it's okay that they're not, and it's actually healthier if they're not. Right, right. Yeah, you're, it's true. Uh, we we got to actually give space to children as well a little bit to kind of be on their own and not all the time, but... <laughs> to right. manage but i mean uh, the the positive thing is that you can hold the household right <laughs> if anything ever happens you like yeah. awesome. you know right. what to do right right but it is this weird thing too where it's like for so many of us and you know who knows this could be my mom's trauma this could be her mental health stuff and how we grew up together this could be single parent stuff this could be that i'm an only child it just could be us specific but i do think So often, you know, when we bring, however we bring kids into our life, whether we birth them, we adopt them, we, you know, whatever that looks like, there's this need to integrate them into our lives in a way that we we have to grieve that things change. And I think sometimes when we sort of over-invest in that relationship or that role, we aren't giving space to grieve some other things or figure out how those other things fit back in, in a way that works for us. And so, you know, I feel that even at the end of the day where I, I can't make Everly my whole world all the time. Sometimes I do, but then I'm not healthy. I'm not the best mentally. I'm not the best professionally. I'm not the best partner. I'm not the best friend, you know, whatever that is. And so I think that piece, and, and as we've gotten older, I've learned that because my mom did everything she could to make it so I never felt distress. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn some of those skills to tolerate distress until I was older. You know, she always wanted me to feel amazing. She always wanted me. I mean, she still says things like you turn everything to gold and you do this stuff. And I love that. And I think it's a little like what we see now with participation trophies for kids. Like they have to sometimes screw up or like fumble and flail and not get it all and not, and have to tolerate distress. You know, I, I wanted, I'm getting the skill. It would have been maybe nice sometimes to have learned that before, because I knew if I was ever upset, I could get whatever I wanted. And that was just a product of my mom's shame. And unfortunately kids will exploit that not intentionally. We're not manipulative and narcissistic, but 
we're learning how to navigate the world. And so if I can get something I want, I'm going to use the skills to get it. And so I think that was a hard reality for me to have to own. Sometimes I did things that were manipulative to get my way. And how do I not do that? Because I don't want to be that person. And and that was tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I got, it's interesting how, what do they want to say? Sometimes like right now they give trophies for everybody who participates yeah. and doesn't matter if you win, you lose just because right. it, so it kills the whole, you know, competitive spirit because in real life, I know for kids, we want to be cons- not consensual, but we want to be nice. Like but inclusive in, in of everyone. World, when we grow up, <laughs> nobody's going to give you a trophy just for participation. Right. You got to work at it. You got to try, you got to fail. And sometimes, uh, when we're surrounded by kind of uh, nothing can ever go wrong or here, here, here we go, here we go. Right. We cannot, we cannot learn that to your point that that skill that uh, allows us to persevere, to go through the difficult situation, to right. go for it, even though if you stumble, if you fall down, but get up and try again. Well, and I think that the, the whole, you know, that saying of it takes a village to raise a kid. And so whether it is, calling on friends, external family members, support groups, a partner. I think the thing that is really tricky, and it obviously depends on where people live. So being in the U.S. specifically for me, it's a very individualistic culture. Like you handle everything within your household and you need to be fine at all times. And I think that is one of the biggest things that breeds shame because it feels like, well, there are these rules of how we have to exist. We have to keep going. We have to be hustling. We have to be productive. We have to be on all the time and have it figured out. So this sort of aspect of communal support is gone for many people. And so I think for my mom, you know, on top of the fact that she was kind of entrenched in her work and then it was just all about me. So some of her own traits, but also just growing up in a community where you you dealt with that stuff in house. You dealt with that in your own home, and I think that's a big thing. Depending on what people's shame stories are coming into parenthood, you don't have that sort of automatic buffer. And for some people that are in partnered relationships or co-parenting, whatever, it's not. It, they might think, well, it would be better if I was doing this alone. Like they have so much tension, so much trauma. There are other things that make it difficult. But I think one of the things for many of us is when you are silently trying to figure it all out in your own head and you feel like the weight and pressure is on you because you are the parent, you are the person there, it's your responsibility. How could shame not come in the room to tell you that you're going to screw it up, make you question yourself, make you constantly kind of micromanage yourself and ruminate on everything you do or don't do. And you get fixated on that. And the more you fixate on that, the less you're responding to your child's cues and the more you're responding to these internal expectations that are rooted in shame. And that's what I think happened for my mom. That's what I think happens for a lot of clients that I work with is it's their own pain getting in the way of them trusting in their ability to do right by their kids, no matter what, and then to seek the support that they need when they need it to know that if you're a single parent trying to figure something out and you are flailing and you resent your child in this moment, there's nothing wrong with you. And it is perfectly okay to need some help with that. But we, we need to get back to that sort of community light that comes from that and talking about those things. And particularly for single parents to realize, I don't know how to do this most days with a partner that is actively involved and who I have a really healthy relationship with. And I still go to bed going, 
did I screw it up? Did I fail? Are we missing something? So I can't imagine what it would be like for someone else and giving yourself permission to be like, man, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I'm being tasked to do it alone while still doing all these other things in my life. It would be reasonable and feasible that it feels like I'm getting it wrong and that I am going to try to overcompensate and I deserve to talk about it with somebody. You are so right. And oftentimes it's because we compare ourselves. Mm-hmm. Single parents compare to fully budded household with mm-hmm. both partners involved. And yeah, am I screwing my kid over? Am I screwing right. them up? Like, are they? And sometimes, uh, to your point, like you grew up, you you didn't know otherwise. For you, right. normal was a single parent. This is how you mm-hmm. live, and this. And f- for many times, like for divorced parents, uh, mm-hmm. in in their head, because you know you had a partner, and how do you now integrate it? How do you break it to your kids? Uh, how do you? And you constantly running this comparison and shame. And right. what, what is the next step to take? Is this is this good? Is this bad? Like what's going on? And yeah. difficult. And you're right about the communal aspect is missing. Uh, when we were growing up, like grandparents, I don't know if you had grandparents in your life, but uh, have that ability. So the parent itself is not so depleted. And when they need help, they have somebody mm-hmm. reliable that they can kind of offload a little bit and to get them back and centered so that they can show up better for their kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was last, I think it was two years ago now we had, so Portland got hit really bad. It's the first year of the pandemic. So we had the pandemic. I had a newborn that she was a week old when the pandemic hit three months in, we had really bad fires and we had about 10 days where we couldn't even leave the house. Like we had to duct tape our windows because of how bad the the air quality was and particularly for newborns and immunocompromised people. And then like four months after that, we had devastating ice storms that took the power out in our homes for about seven, eight days. And I was just losing it. You know, a new parent in general, sleep was a really big challenge for us and like figuring out how to support Everly with her sleep. And then all these things that kept happening again, like, I don't know how to do this in a pandemic. I am across the country from all my main support people. I can't get on a plane. Nobody can come out to see us like they were supposed to and all these aspects. And there was a moment when the power went out and it was January of 2021. I called my mother-in-law and I was panicking on the phone. There was just like, I'm like, okay. And now there's this. And Everly was, you know, sitting on the floor in the kitchen. All this is happening. And she goes, you know, Everly is only going to know how you react right now. She doesn't have any context for this experience other than your reaction right now. And it has been a game-changing experience for me in terms of how I approach things with parents. And I think particularly for single parents to think about, your kids only know the reality they're existing in right now. And so if this change happens, I know many divorces are messy. People, you know, death and loss in other ways with a parent too. There's a need to grieve. There's a need to feel all those really hard and painful emotions. And we have to do the internal work to not code that transition as a failure in our part and a deficit, particularly when it's divorce and it's this idea of, well, you failed, you screwed up, you did something, you should have tried harder, you should have picked a different partner, you should be better. And instead thinking, how do I need to work through that so that I can give them the experience of saying, gosh, what do we learn from this? What do we gain from this? What beauty can there be when we have this new family dynamic? And I think that is the thing for many of us is 
there needs to be space to grieve, whether it's like my mom early on realizing she was going to go it alone and she didn't have a partner when she was pregnant or again, loss later on and just saying, how can I remind myself they will only know how we move forward with this situation. And if I can gift myself the opportunity to feel it, move through it, grieve it, you know, all of those pieces, and then show up in a way that I can shift my mindset around, how can we all be stronger? What can we take from this? How can we learn? And how can I see myself as whether it's today, six years ago, whatever, doing the best I can with the information I had at the time that I did it. And I think for all of us, that might just again, get us back to that place of talking about things and not so stuck and feeling like we're just compounding the evidence of why we are the worst person or the worst parents on the planet. Yes, we become our own judge, executioner and performer in one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we criticize ourselves to no end. When nobody 100%. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, it's a constant dialogue with on repeat, no matter what. Yeah. Did your experience growing up led you to the work that you do now? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what I wanted to understand for me. So my mom struggled because of her bipolar disorder. She ended up struggling pretty significantly with some uh, substance use issues. And so I ended up moving in with my grandma in middle school because of a lot of what she was going through and she was kind of in and out of treatment centers and prison and, and a few places. And it was a really tricky thing to navigate again, this idea of like, I was her everything. And then suddenly I wasn't, and that was really hard for me to make sense of like, so why wasn't I enough then? And I think, again, that's a very specific thing, maybe to my story and, and people that have gone through that kind of trauma. But one of the things that I think for me, I wanted to figure out was as I got older, I was kind of forced into therapy early on, but I never really found like I got connected to in any way. And people kind of pathologized me or my mom and like never really asked the questions. And so getting into therapy, it was just thinking about the fact that all of us experience shame. I didn't, I really got into shame in my twenties and understanding what shame is and how it shows up. And it's realizing every one of us is just trying to belong and we all have a list of reasons we're not good enough and we're not worthy and expectations of how we're supposed to perform. And I just wanted to change the way of how we have conversations about that. And that's really my big thing. So whether it's talking to I me, mean, my mom and I talk at nauseum about our life growing up and our lives now and the, the dynamics we're still learning to rework through, you know, working with patients in the therapy room, coaching clients, conversations like this, it's just realizing that this is the most universal experience. It might be contingent on something, you know, might be really high for someone because it's a single parent narrative. It might be high for someone because of some other thing that they're going through. I just did a podcast a couple of days ago around loss of a baby and not carrying pregnancy to term and talking about those things. And it's specific to these different elements, but it is also, it's the one, it sounds painful, but it's the one thing that binds us all is we all need to belong and we all don't feel like we do. And so that was really, I think the, the thing that came out of my experience and kind of paying attention to other people's experiences and realizing I could be a part of changing that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think now that you are a parent yourself, what do you think is the most important trait to instill in a child? Hmm. I really like that question. 
I think one of the things that I try to sit with for Everly is how do I give her space to realize however she's feeling deserves space and then how do we help her find ways to deal with that that aren't maladaptive so either you know for little little kids like her at almost three is that screaming and tantrums and pushing and all that kind of stuff as we get older it's avoiding masking and performing and so I think you know the biggest thing I try to focus on is how do I give her the opportunity to to not code emotions as good or bad to not see the world as something where she has expectations that she has to meet, but to give her a sense of curiosity and kind of exploring those things and then help guide responses to those feelings. And who knows, I'm sure, again, I've only been doing this for almost three years. And so I'm sure there's a lot more for me to learn, but I think, you know, and that when I meet with adults in a coaching session or in the therapy room, it's like the thing that all of us are looking to say is, it's okay to feel sad, to feel angry, to have grief, to have shame. And it's what I do with that, that I need to sort through and figure out how I want to show up. So I think that piece, and as maybe I think kind of in tandem to that as parents and caregivers is how do you approach parenthood with curiosity? I know we were talking offline before we got on here, but this idea of I used to use this app when she was born called Wonder Weeks that helps track developmental leaps. And that's great and helpful but also like every kid is their own kid. So how do you just be curious about that? You know, if she's at a play date and she's struggling and she doesn't want to play and she's having a hard time sharing, just get curious about it and just kind of allow that to be what it is and be there with them in it. And I think, at least for me, the more I do that, the less I get to the end of the day and feeling like I'm failing because rather than think there has to be an answer, I'm just curious about the process. I love that you bring curiosity into the equation. I think it's important. And as adults, I think we lose curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very curious when we are kids. We're constantly asking the why question or how the world works. We're excited about it. And as adults, it's kind of dumping down, <laughs> slowing down. Yeah. So how do you keep your curiosity alive? <laughs> I think you know, working with, with people, and I'm sure you find this too. One of the biggest things is just every story is different. And every time I try to make an assumption or draw a conclusion, if I look for it, there's data that it could be something different too. And so I get really, really curious about what are the other possibilities? What am I missing? I took a class in who was when I went back to get my master's in counseling psych. And I, there was a really cool course in the medical microbiology department on vaccines. And the course was basically every topic you had to write a paper on it and you had to switch sides pro and anti-vaccine and the whole course. And he never asked anybody to take an, a formal position, but he made everybody consider both sides. And it was the coolest experience for me to recognize how every time we try to think that we're concrete. I'm absolutely, I believe this thing. This is how the world works. This is what it is. This is the, this is the end all be all solution. Somebody else has a completely different story with a completely different conclusion and endpoint. And so for me now, it's just, I want to know as many viewpoints as possible. And I, I seek opportunities to be wrong. 
And that's just like a really fun thing. I took a lot of years and a lot of pain because my brain was like, if you're wrong, you're failing and everyone will hate you. But that piece. And I think the second thing I do with, with my daughter is I now try to witness more than I guide. And so I think that is also something that brings my curiosity forward is going back to that. Like, I know how to run a household. I know how to do these things. I have been given a very big platform to be heard within my family, within my profession, all these places, but I want to learn how to talk less and listen more in those spaces. Because I think that also makes you go, huh, interesting. I wouldn't have done that. Her brain must see it differently. So how do others see it too? And that I think is really fun. It's like, it's interesting. Approach every question or every problem with an interesting uh, in the end. Yeah. <laughs> because right. we always, we always going to see the part that is triggering to us, our ego. Mm -hmm. But to any situation, there are always multiple sides to the story. If we choose to see. There right. is a great, right. uh, how you call it, but this going to the positive, but Michael Beckwith says that uh, what presently, in any situation, what presently is good here that I currently cannot see? Let's mm. say if it's a negative situation, we immediately focus on all the bad things that life is happening to us, why are we being mm -hmm. punished? But if we look at another side of it, just pause a little bit for a second and see what positive is there in the situation or in that opportunity or whatever is happening to kind of give yourself Again, curiosity, be curious about the other side of the equation that we cannot immediately see because it's not. Yeah. Sometimes it yeah. just passes through us. It's like, right. And when we get triggered, that, that's the first thing that the, our ego is kind of, here you go. Right. Confirmation bias, essentially. And it just looks for that. I love that quote. I think that's a really helpful way to shape it in our brain to think about, you know, how how do we reframe and build just greater context? It doesn't mean that you have to say, well, this terrible thing that happened is positive. What we're saying is, are there other things outside of that? Can you broaden your scope? Can you see something more than that? Is there a different perspective? Who else can we consider? There's a, a lot of research that points to gratitude being connected to curiosity and how the more we practice gratitude, the more we can start to expand our scope too. So it kind of just makes me think of that, like in mo moments, where you're just thinking about, you know, everything that sucks, everything that's going wrong, everything that's not great. Is there a moment of gratitude that you can have that helps you see that the world is more than this moment of pain or this situation or this, this thought that you're stuck on? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is your personal superpower? Mm. I think the willingness to say things out loud that we've been told not to say. So just in the context of shame, of just saying the things out loud that a lot of us feel. And I've learned to sit in the distress that comes with the silence in doing that and recognizing the power and being able to do that. And that is, I think, feedback I get from a lot of people that I talk to and work with is just there's an inherent safety in knowing somebody is not judging you or holding things in, but it is going to put out there and say it and make space for you to say it and just kind of allow all those possibilities of who you are and to know that it's okay to say hard things out loud, you know, like the single parent that 
just feels like the worst parent on the planet. And then in that moment or that week or that month resents being a parent and doesn't like their kid and feels like they should, and they have to figure it out. And all they want to do is run away and want to break. And it's being able to say those things out loud and giving people permission to say that doesn't define you as a person. It's a normal human experience. And I think, yeah, just riding that wave of distress that comes with saying it for myself, but also saying it for other people too. Thank you. I think it's incredible being able to be authentic and doesn't matter what anybody thinks, but say it like it is. Right. Have the courage, have the strength. You don't have to agree with everybody, but speak yeah. what what is on your mind, on your head. Right. Is there anything I haven't asked that you would like to share? Goodness, I don't think so. I mean, I think we could talk about shame and parenthood for many, many weeks on end without ever running out of topics. But I think the biggest thing is just coming back to this idea of shame is a universal thing. And we were all sort of given from the time we were born a subset of rules, expectations, norms, internalized biases about how we're supposed to be. And the makeup of your household is one of them that you have messages about. And so I think just maybe taking away the idea of, of course, you feel like you failed. Of course, you feel like you did something wrong or you don't know what to do, or this is overwhelming and not living up to some external expectation doesn't mean anything other than it was somebody else's ideal, somebody else's norm. It's not yours. And so I think just sort of detaching from that, or even just stepping back and saying, if I buy into this, it means I'm also buying into all these other systems of oppression that I don't believe in. And so I'm going to give myself permission to say, I am not a worse parent or a worse person or a worse partner because my marriage ended, or I don't have a partner and I wanted to be a kid or have a kid or any of those things. And maybe then coming back to that notion of, again, same thing, of course, then somebody else feels that too. And of course you have the right to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom, your story and your experiences and being vulnerable and being so open. Thank you. If people would like to learn more about you, where would they go? Yeah, they can come to my website. So it's adversityrising.com. They can find spaces to contact me from there, check out some of the different programs, things that I do, or just send me an email, let me know that they, what they want to learn about. So I would love to see them there and connect more about anything that's sitting with them. Thank you. Thank you. We'll include all of the links in episode notes so people can connect with you directly. Thank you so much. Of course. If you like this episode, please share with somebody who would benefit. You can leave comments, topic suggestions, and add your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It also helps greatly when you download the episode. If you feel lost, emotionally hurt after divorce and want to rediscover who you are, you don't have to do it alone. Join our community on Facebook, Limitless Women, Self-Love, Mindset and Support for Relationships, where we hold trainings and various events to help you thrive and become happy again. Because life after divorce is possible and can even be great. If no one told you today, I want you to know that I love you and believe in you because you are limitless.